tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to creature concept designer Jake Lunt Davies from helping to design BB-8 and the Lugga Beast in The Force Awakens, Porgs and Thala Sirens in The Last Jedi, collaborating with his daughter for Solo, and of course, working on Dio, Space Horses, and Akiyaki for The Rise of Skywalker. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 56, Jake Lunt Davies. What inspired you? What made you want to be a designer? What was that first impetus for you growing up? And how did you kind of carry that through to be a professional one? My backstory. Yes, the origin. <laughs> the origin story. It's very kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is. It's kind of a bit convoluted and a bit not exactly, you know, I didn't set out to do what I'm doing. I think when I was a kid, Star Wars, I love Star Wars, and Star Wars was, you know, it was, it was a dream job. I remember... This is weird, actually. But when I'd started on, I'd already started working on Star Wars, and my mother had found this thing that I'd written. I'd written this sort of, like, list of stuff about me when I was a kid. And it was, like, all my likes and dislikes and my sort of description of me and my ambitions and stuff like that. And it, at the very bottom of this, it had ambition. It was, it, it bizarrely said, to be the designer uh, for special effects on for Lucasfilm. <laughs> I'd completely forgotten that I'd written this yeah. thing down. It, very sort of like, well, wow, I've just achieved, you know, when she sent me this thing yeah. and said, look, this is when you're 13. I was like, wow, I've achieved my ambition. But, you know, that was, as a kid, I was like growing up in the in the countryside in England <laughs> and, and Star Wars is is Hollywood. And I didn't even, didn't even think, you know, as much as, you know, Star Wars was shot in this country, it didn't really sort of occur to me that, that it was a job that I could do you know like working in film it was that was that was america you know it was like i just I, I just kind of forgot about it it was a childhood dream that i didn't really push or, or think was achievable and and kind of put it to one side so when i eventually went to university i studied thought oh, i'll do graphic design i'm artistic there's jobs in graphic design and i did graphic design and uh I didn't love graphic design, and halfway, I, did, I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to be a graphic designer, am I? <laughs> Nonetheless, I, I just you know, carried on and did my degree, got my degree, and then after that, I sort of came out of university. And I didn't have, a, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I, I, you know, I was kind of bumming around really for the first year or so until somebody said, oh, you know, I need a job, and somebody said, hey, hey, look, I'm, they, they were working on a TV show. And I said, yeah, okay, I just, did, I just did this job as a, you know, as a runner on a TV show, and make, you know, classically making cups of tea and running around doing errands. And then I realized that, oh, actually, this is, you know, it wasn't a great TV show, but it is, nonetheless, it's, it's working in some tiny form part of the film industry. So I kind of got into it and I, I worked my way up. I sort of just thought I, I got into the art departments and I, you know, started showing that I was autistic and I stopped being a runner and I became an art department runner and I became, I worked my way up to become an art director. And I was still working mainly in sort of TV commercials and pop videos in the 90s, really. And during that time, I was like, oh, yeah, no, maybe I could get into film. But it was really hard to get into film. It's quite hard to sort of make the jump. You know, it's very... It's about knowing the right people, I suppose. It's, you know, networks of, of people. A lot of these jobs aren't, or at least then, they weren't advertised. You know, they just sort of happened organically. And 
if you knew people, they'd go, oh, yeah, so-and-so is free or so-and-so is available. They're, they're shooting on this, and you'd find out. You'd be able to, you'd be able to sort of try and get on the, these jobs. But commercials and TV was different to film, so I never kind of bumped into the right people. And I tried and tried, and eventually I thought, I'll, I'll stick with what I've, uh, I'm doing. And I just, yeah, I was working in commercials for a very long time. Uh, I'm basically giving you my, my backstory here. I love it, here. I love it. <laughs> so I've never sort of thinking, yeah, in the back of my mind, as the years go by, I think I'd love to work in film. I'd love to do the, the jobs I'm doing right now, but I, I don't think even then I thought it was an achievable thing. I just thought it'd be good to work on a film. You know, over the course of this this time, it was actually when, sort of late 90s, early 2000s, I met Neil Scanlon, who I now kind of work for on Star Wars, through another, through this, you know, working TV. He was doing a, a, a sort of, kids well he was approached to do this kids puppet show which i'd been approached to do the sort of character designs for and he was going to make them that it was it was kind of rubbish it never went anywhere but nonetheless you know the best bit was that i met neil and from i did sort of quite a lot of work with neil over the sort of early 2000s doing various bits of design work at that time neil who was he's like you know ex hensons he won an oscar for babe and he was like you know Animatronics king. Unfortunately, in the early 2000s, you know, animatronics was a sort of dying skill. You know, no one, everyone was digital, digital, yeah, 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 CG. Uh, no one wanted it. So Neil was sort of just kind of winding down. You know, he was doing kind of kid shows and he, he, the glory days, I suppose, of doing the animatronics in the 80s and 90s were sort of disappearing. And over, you know, over that sort of, over the sort of early 2000s, it got to the point where I'd worked on, I think the last thing I worked on with Neil was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I was doing some sort of concepts work for his animatronics stuff. But after that, he was, his world moved away. He was getting into sort of special makeup effect and prosthetics, which didn't really need my input. And, uh, you know, our, our paths sort of diverged. And I'd also been getting into this stage. I've been doing a lot of storyboarding, which I still do. I've been doing a lot of that recently. And I kind of got out of art directing. Art directing was kind of weird, but quite a headache. And I found storyboarding was extremely profitable. And <laughs> less of a, yeah, far more than art directing. And a um, bit of a sideways move. But nonetheless, from... From storyboarding, this is so Neil and I sort of parted company. We, our, our, our worlds weren't sort of meshing anymore. He was doing his stuff. I was actually then looking at sort of I'd been offered directing work, so I was directing uh, on and off sort of viral ads, you know, sort of funny little ads in the viral advertising. And was going to then lead into commercials advertising, and I got represented by a commercials company and you know, like a production company in twenty. 12 i think to do advertising i think yeah this is, i'm going to be a commercials commercials director ka-ching um which is you know if you get some good ones it's fun uh, there's obviously lots of terrible commercials which you you know you're selling your soul but you know again the money's good and i thought this, this would be great and who knows where that could lead and then i've been represented with this commercials company for about a year and done a couple of jobs for them and pitched on loads of things and then neil phoned me up out of the blue and i hadn't spoken to neil for about five years i think and he said yeah jake hi long time <laughs> hi, neil, how are you i just said he gets the point i've got some great news he said i've got star wars and i'm like wow uh, probably said some bigger words than that. He said, "Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to know, you know, see if you'd be interested in joining the team." And I'm like, uh, "Yeah, I'd love to." <laughs> 
Uh, and it wasn't like, you know, here you are, you've got a job. I then, I then had to uh, have a, you know, talk, uh, a sort of conversation with production. And I remember having a big sort of like uh, conference call with Rick Carter and users and Neil at the same time. And we had a chat. It was like a sort of meeting. And then I was given a brief for uh, just like a week. So it was like a test, you know, a test job. And could you like, you know, just sort of have a go at this character, which was Maz at the time. It was Rose, you know, the code name was Rose, and uh, it was you know, Maz. And just, you know, bash some ideas out, and we'll talk to you again in a week. So I did that, and a week later, I had another conference call, and yeah, yeah, that'd be great, thank you, and brilliant, you know, when you could start. So I just started from then, really, and yeah, when you started on. My question then is, working so closely with Neil through this process, I think what's so interesting, there's the art department based in America, and then there's the one that's closer to the actual filming location, and you're having to create things for the physicality and for the actual fabrication of these costumes and masks yeah. and, and puppeteers. Uh, what was that process like of first, let's say, a blue sky period to then a final creation of a mask or a larger puppet? Well, I mean, just yeah, just firstly, when you talk about the departments, yeah, obviously you've got Lucasfilm doing their thing in Ireland, doing their thing in the States, and then you've got the art department, you know, the production art department doing their thing, and costume have their concept guys doing their thing. And I think Neil wanted to have his own concept guys that he could, be you know monitor and make sure that you know I think he'd found in the past having worked on stuff and his, his knowledge of things is that quite often people would generate these ideas which were then very hard to potentially realize you know that, that without him sort of being uh, controlling or at least uh, monitoring what was being created yeah you could be given some cool designs and I, again I spoke to lots of sculptors later on who said it's great having a concept team so involved because you know, quite often in the past, the, the, the sculptors and the fabricators would find themselves with these concepts, which were very hard to realize because they didn't sort of take into the full effect, you know, the, the technical aspects of, as you say, like masks and fitting it around people and the, the, the reality of it. So, yeah, working with Neil, it was really good to be able to, you know, we'd have lots of discussions about what was feasible and what ideas we could play with. Yeah, initially it was pretty blue sky, but I think at the back of our minds, we didn't go nuts for doing things which were unachievable. You know, there was always this idea that we've got to do this for real. You know, we're not, we can't sort of do things for CG. So, you know, if it's going to be a, a, a performer, then they have to fit in it. <laughs> you know, so they have to be able to sort of take this thing on and off. There's got to be space for mechanics. There's got to be. I remember we also looked a lot initially just at what we could do with the human form and we just looked at, at performers street performers people doing circus performers how people can bend their bodies right. there was just lots of talking you know it was just there it was just always being discussed and we were finding kind of cool ideas on you know performers on youtube that were sort of moving in a certain way yeah, yeah that's cool we incorporate that and i mean there were things like for instance i remember there were two 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 designs which i did which were the big what we call the big beast and the little beast uh -huh. which were the hapabore and the lovely and both of those were kind of born out of a you know conversations we were having at the time which was like you know we were looking at warhorse 
the stage show. You know, War Horse and the Lugger Beast are essentially the same right. gag. You know, you've got two guys uh, in the War Horse costume, and on stage you can see them. It's you know, but they're, they're, we did the same thing. We had two guys inside that Lugger Beast. Right. We green. They were wearing green legs, which were digitally removed. But essentially. Those two guys, we they were warhorse. Right. Yeah, I was gonna say we, uh, Derek Arnold. I know was was warhorse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got we just got them involved basically, and then they brought all their sort of puppeteering knowledge to the table. And, and there was it's a sort of you know they would tell us how they they like to do things, and they 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 were sort of instructive in in what they knew about the way that puppet had been constructed. And so yeah, I can draw a kind of cool thing, and I know it's vaguely gonna work and then that drawing is then dissected by the end the mechanics and the animatronic engineers and the puppeteers all kind of get involved and they build a a very simple frame version just to sort of check that it all will work and then they can build up from that and the happy ball was just <laughs> we were just all sitting around going what if <laughs> we just made it even bigger you know right. Uh, we again that was just the happy ball was cool because that wasn't even i mean none of those things were called for as well we we going back to your blue sky thing when you mentioned blue sky we had a lot of latitude to just create cool stuff and we you know show these ideas on paper i suppose to, to jj and we'd have these meetings and you know we know that we were offering things which were achievable uh like you know the the, the lugger beast and you know, a lot of these things weren't written into the script. There was no sort of scripted idea that Tito was going to be writing that thing in the script. It was just Ray rescues BB-8 from the clutches of Tito, right. where he is, how he moves around was a bit vague. So, yeah, we just came up with that. And, hey, JJ, do you like this idea? <laughs> and as much as that, um, you know, the Happer ball was an even you know funnier one because we you know, obviously got the, the, the Lugger Beast ball rolling and we were thinking, let's just we could make this bigger we could have like five men you know the happy ball was a it was brilliant it was five people there's one guy one guy on each leg so effectively the guys on the legs had one leg in each leg right? so every time they took a, you know, a step with one one leg they'd be moving the leg of the beast and their other was just hidden you couldn't see it in all the darkness they were just wearing black i don't i don't think they even needed to green screen them out they were just hidden under the folds of happy ball fat um, but that thing slightly underused, I have to say, in the, in the movie. But it, it could walk. You know, it could you could just it could walk around and, and move. And uh, Neil had basically, you know, thought this is a cool idea and took the risk of making a very you know simple mock-up out of stuff called plastazote, which is like a sort of uh, quite stiff uh, modelling foam. But we built this, you know, full-scale head out of plastazote and a sort of very loose frame body that you could weigh up the mass of this thing without actually building that much of it. Yeah, they built this thing in a week. And then we had a what we call a show and tell. We'd have these very often we'd have these show and tells, but JJ and the producers would come around and we'd show, you know, everything that we were doing at that time in a sort of very this cool presentation, a bit theatrical. And we did this big meeting and we showed him what we were up to and what BB-8 was doing because BB-8 was being developed at the time. And then um, Neil said, oh, yeah, JJ, just one last thing. We're this big, in this big warehouse. We, we sl- open this big door at the back and this huge big beast sort of, you know, stomps down <laughs> the... <laughs> JJ's like, it could have gone either way. Right. JJ could have gone, oh, what the hell's that? No way. 
But no, he loved it. So that's, you know, you could see the potential even with this very rough mock-up of this enormous beast. And said, yeah, fantastic. Make it. I love it. So, yeah, that, yeah that, and then it's in the film and it's drinking the trough and and there's a whole sequence where where Finn comes up and, the, and, and takes that drink out of the, the, the trough after stumbling through the desert. Yeah, that's all born. All these little moments are sort of, they weren't in the script originally. They were sort of born out of, stuff which we were sort of just generating really which was brilliant you know it's really cool to be able to offer that kind of creativity to the movie and that creativity and that enthusiasm i think for this kind of creation and pushing the practical and the puppeteering really shows especially in that first even 30 minutes of force awakens right where no one really knew what to expect from this new star wars movie and then over and over again you just have these scenes like the Lug of Beast, like the Hapavor, like Boba, uh, Boba Joe, and, and all these different little things yeah. where it was just like little brief glimpses of a universe that we were familiar with and you kind of just were able to tangibly grab onto it. And I think that really helped you establish yourself back into the galaxy. Yes. Yeah, no, good. <laughs> <laughs> it worked, yeah. Well, I mean, talking about Force Awakens, and I have all of the obviously incredible Phil Showstack art of books in front of me, and I kind of just put a bunch of sticky notes because your name pops up hundreds of times across all of these books it does. And, yeah. <laughs> and 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 if you don't mind i'd love to just kind of go through because i really just want to impart to the listener especially the the wide breadth of all of these different creatures you either had a part in designing or designed outright that are so iconic now um especially just starting with with force awakens if you're game okay i got awakens okay. what are you looking at i'm looking first i'd love to talk about Ray's speeder, right? Because uh, that's page one fifty-five. Because Luke's land speeder is is such an important part of that original Star Wars movie, right? And establishing kind of the location of Luke and where he is both in his life and also on that planet. How important was it for you to to kind of give similar weight to Ray and to her journey and to her plight? I think for me, really, it was more. You know, I, first of all, you know, we were very, you know, we, my, my job was, you know, I'm there for creatures. I was working for the creature department. And it was, uh, I, I think the art department had been generating a lot of ideas for the speeder and uh, got to the point where I don't think JJ was really like, you know, getting into them enough that Darren Guilford, the, the co-production designer, amazingly sort of came to creatures and said, you know, would we like to have a go? And, you know, get involved, which was a really great opportunity as well. So I'm sort of thankful for that. And there were three or four of us doing that. And between, I mean, I did, I probably did about, I looked at this quite recently, I probably did about 20 different designs, <laughs> I think. Three or four of them were based on this idea that became what it is, mm -hmm. which is which is this, this, I think I was just looking at something initially very, I mean, I can't remember which came first. But, you know, I can tell you that, that its source, the, the things that inspired me for the speeder was the simplicity. You know, no. the simplicity is we, it's a thing that we should keep going back to in a lot of our work, and we're not consciously sort of going keep it simple, keep it simple. But every so often, we I think we we discuss it or we realise that and we acknowledge the fact that there is a simplicity to Star Wars designs, which kind of makes is the thing is one of the things why they work right and i've, I've often said I don't know if it's me that's saying this or i've copied it off somebody else but but it's a thing 
you know, you can take so many Star Wars designs and distill them to a handful of, you could, you know, simple lines and know what they are. And I think that's or a silhouette. And the fact that the, 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 the you know, a child can draw some, you know, you can anyone can draw R two D two, and somebody can point to go, that's R two D two. You just draw a cylinder with a, you know, dome on top and some legs. Right. Or a Tie Fighter is you can distill that down to a, a circle with two, two sort of lines on either side. Or an X wing is just an X. You know, the whole the, the, there are so many iconic the iconicness of these designs. You can just because you can draw them so simply. I think is one of the things that makes it work. And I kind of thought as I was developing this idea that would become the speeder is that, you know, yeah, it's just a, it's just a slab, isn't it? <laughs> you could ease, it's, there's nothing, it's a very easy design to draw. And there's that element. There's an element of agricultural, you know, I was looking at tractors, you know, again, you could just take, you could put wheels on that thing and it would be a track, you know, put two big wheels at the back and it's like taking the wheels off a tractor almost. Um, there's an element of that. There's a sort of simplicity to agricultural design that, you know, they're, they're, they do what they are meant to do and that's it. There's no sort of fanciness or fripperies to it. Right. There's elements in it, I think, of just a race, you know, like those sort of 1930s, racing cars there's bits there with the little uh the little uh well just i suppose again those racing cars you could just extrude it upwards you'd get the same shape there are just different things which i liked and threw in there and they all became it in the end <laughs> <laughs> well i mean you mentioned simplicity of design and, and on the next page on 156 it is the the final model or close to it of the bb-8 face design especially and the bb-8 design of course went from the jj sticky note sketch to then yep. christian alsman uh who i talked yeah. to last year and then uh to yes. you and so that evolution maybe explain where your part of the process came in and then really establishing bb-8's personality really on on how his face looks and operates and, and draws that viewer in again there's a lot of people involved with bb-8 you know it wasn't just i have to say you know me sitting drawing it as, as much as I was given Christian's work and Christian did you know lay down the you know you can look at Christian's work and go oh, that's BB-8 uh, it's got all the colors it's got all the, 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 the there's elements in there which have just kind of carried on through and I think I think in, in no disrespect to Christian perhaps some of those things were there was a sort of busyness I think to some of those designs I remember there was a quite a very complicated ball designs uh, the ball changed perhaps more than the head. The elements of those sides, which perhaps were a little bit anthropomorphic, the eyes were very level. You know, they almost felt like two eyes at a time. Even though they were different sizes, you felt there were two eyes, and sometimes even a mouth. Uh, the stuff that I drew for that, I was just pushed it back. I think I looked at, you know, it was making it a little bit more closer, uh, making taking that design and making it feel more R two D two, like if R two if if the factory that made R2-D2 40 years later, what were they making then? There were, there were still design traits from R2-D2 that carried on through. So there are elements of R2 in sort of, you know, how, how he's got more of it. He's got more of a sort of single eye. He's got more of an eye than R2-D2. R2-D2's eye is not quite as pronounced as bb 8 I think bb 8s definitely got an eye, if not two. Yeah, R2's a bit vague. It's not quite as sort of strong an eye design. And then, yeah, there's elements of around his head, which I think are 
sort of developed from R2D2 styling. The ball design was, again, I did lots and lots of different things and racking, I'm just trying to take myself back there. The, the ball design kind of, when we, were, we made a, a little scale model of BB-8 for the puppeteer, Brian Herring, to sort of start to work with and start to find a, a puppeteering language for. And at the same time, Josh Lee, who was the engineer, animatronics designer, was building this thing. We were all kind of working together and talking. And I remember, I think the ball design really sort of stemmed from a couple of things in that there was a, as the, as the ball rolls and moves around the screen, we realized that you needed quite big, bold patterns to read. You know, the busier and the more complicated the pattern would just become a blur as you moved along. Really, I mean, I mean BB-8 does blur to some degree, but the smaller and fussier the design, uh, the more you'd lose it as he rolled. Whereas the bigger and bolder those designs are, when he moves, you still see chunks of it rolling. You still uh, can tell it's, you know, those, those blobs of orange and those blobs of grey moving. Right. So that was sort of, now that was born out of the, the puppeteering process or, you know, developing. We, we just tried sticking different lumps on there and seeing which things read <laughs> good. Move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that's too busy. Let's just make it simpler. And we, we boiled it down to those, you know, six, six items. And again, with the puppeteering, we offset the, because uh, there's a sort of, essentially, it's like pushing a, a, a ball on a stick. And there's, out, there's an axle point that comes out of one side. And again, we offset that so that the axle point just comes out of a random section of the white panels. So that as Brian pushes it along, it doesn't look too symmetrical. It has a sort of wobbliness to it, and it gives it a very organic movement um, that isn't just sort of, it's not like symmetrical. And it looks, it just gives the impression that BB-8 has this sort of free-moving ball under his head, when in fact he doesn't. It's, it's partly down to the design and where the axle point is, and partly down to Brian's skill of how he sort of moves it and wobbles it to give it that impression of being a free roaming ball when it's actually not. Mm -hmm. And then I suppose the other thing as well, going back to Josh as the animatronic designer, he had, we, we had to sort of work out how to access things, get things in and out, how it's going to be built. Right. And it just to this point where, you know, having these six discs, I think Josh, you know, I'd drawn it and Josh was like, oh, that's brilliant. You know, that will really help. That will work from a construction point of view. We can make this effectively sit. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's, it's cubic design within the six sides, even though it's spherical. You know, he can make this very sort of geometric, easy, you know, these big panels, which you, or they can be removed, you can get inside, you can change batteries. Yeah, there were practical elements which drove, I suppose, the, you know, practical engineering and puppeteering decision that influenced or was part of the process. It wasn't just me going, hey, <laughs> I'm going to make it. <laughs> so, yeah, and obviously this all had to go, you know, it goes through various people. You know, Neil has his input, JJ obviously has his input. You know, it's not, it wasn't a case of us laying down the law and going, this is what it's got to be. You know, JJ's obviously going, I like that, I don't like this. So it's, it's a, there's a lot of people involved in making those decisions. And it sort of gently goes in this direction to the point where you think, right, that's it. You know, even the design went through, I don't know, you know, there were, we built mock-ups where there were three or four different size heads uh -huh. just to weigh up physically 
the aesthetic, you know, is his head too big, too small? A lot of my early designs, he had a much bigger head, uh-huh. you know, because I was very cute. And he had, you know, that whole sort of baby, you know, cartoon, they had a sort of cartoon thing where you have big heads, big eyes, right. etc. I was, originally, yeah, I started off with his head was probably, you know, I can't say marginally bigger, but it looked bigger on him. It gave him <laughs> far more of a cuter baby. Yeah. Feel. And uh, you know, we, we we established through a group decision, his head is going to be this big <laughs> because everyone that's the best aesthetic size for his head. And then the panel designs were just you know I just had to come up with six random sort of cool ideas really, and and, and that that was it really. They were just fairly again just drawing on the Star Wars style and finding things which different. They're, they're pretty random. I did my initials into one of them, but oh. he rejected them. Oh. And I did about. I did about, uh, I did about a dozen, you know, there were about a dozen panel designs. JJ, can you pick six designs? <laughs> not, not more than my initials in, but that was just that was, that was the, the silly one at the end. I wasn't expecting it. You're talking so much about practicality and about really infusing characters with personality right off the bat. And uh, 198, page 198 is, is a good spread of the Maz Cantina aliens. What was your process creating for this world and what was your process to create so many different unique looking aliens in that process why well yeah okay for, i'm going to try and there's various things i need to do first of all on that page if anyone is looking at this page <laughs> i i can't take full credit for everything on that page because i was given at the time there were, there, there, generally there's four of us involved in this job there's me there's uh, luke fisher ivan manzella and martin rezard and between us, we've all sort of, you know, created, we're all content designers and we've all created um, ideas and, and, and designs. The other three guys are all sculptors as well. Very, very good sculptors. And on Force Awakens, they were sort of drafted off to go and sculpt stuff, having submitted various designs. So I would have to say that, that on that page, I had been left to sort of tidy up. Because <laughs> we had... Yeah, all these d- designs have been picked, and I'm, I'm going to—I'll jump back to it. What happens is, is that the, the, the process was, is that they, we would be given a sort of a list of stuff we had to do, you know, like Mavs and like BB-8, uh, that were very specific, and otherwise we were just given free reign to just make up stuff. It was, you know, it's amazing, amazing sort of uh, opportunity, you know, just to be given. <laughs> Just make up some cool aliens. You think our Star Wars? And it's like great, you know. So we generated lots and lots and lots. And what we do is we have this big sort of regular. We generate loads of stuff. We have a meeting, and JJ or this is the same process for every film we worked on. Uh, they we stick all this stuff up on the wall, and the director will walk around and they'll go, you know, literally pick stuff up. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. And this this B list. And then we keep adding to it because we can't stop generating this stuff. And but as 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 the, as the weeks go on, this this pyramid effect you know, happens where we get to an A list, and then we get to right these are signed off. We're going to make these aliens. And as those weeks are going on, JJ or the directors sort of like thinking, oh, I could use these ones here, or I could use these ones here. Or we've you know we know that we've got to provide a whole bunch of stuff for Mazda's Castle. Uh, so we're doing very, you know, like, sorry, I'm jumping around here, but, you know, with the, with the whole bunch of designs specifically for, for Jakku, you know, we knew we had to do, we were given a, well, 
our brief was desert scavengers. Okay, off you go. So we did a whole bunch of stuff for desert scavengers. And then, you know, Mazda's Castle. Give us some stuff for Mazda's Castle. And maybe we'll chuck in some of the stuff we didn't use on desert scavengers. I don't know. So we, we end up with this, this huge big list of, of things, which is some of just headshots. And then going back to the other guys, they, they've generated these things. And they have to go off and sculpt half of them with the other sculptors. And I'm left to then expand on them. So, for instance, on this page, the, as much as I'm credited for them, I have to say that the only one that is wholly mine is the little two blue guys at the top, which are my little ideas for these puppets. The guy on the left, who looks like a hammerhead, is actually Martin's design. But Martin had only done the head, and then he got off. And it was like, Jake, can you do the rest of it? So I did the rest of that design. And similarly, you know, the two guys at the bottom, those are... Luke Fisher's design, yeah, he did that. It's just a head, and I gave it a body. Um, annoyingly for Luke, there's a couple of his which I, <laughs> I changed. Like, for instance, that one on the, that's next to it, which is Luke Fisher's design, which it says Maz Castle uh, Droid Original. In fact, I do say in the book what I did there is that Luke did that picture, and then it was like I drew it as a Luke could imagine that was going to be like a cool, you know, robot bounty hunter or something. But I made it into this, <laughs> I made it into a, into a woman, just because I thought, why not? It'd be quite good fun. Uh, and it'd be, it was, it, we ended up being cast as a, as a girl, and she had quite a nice, shapely, uh, robotic outfit on. Uh, Luke was a bit like, oh, you've just changed my design. But it, he's, I think he's quite happy with it, really. Yeah. It's quite a cool design. Brilliant head. And then similarly, that the, the, the Grum, what's his name? Grum, Grum, Grumgar, Grumgar, <laughs> Ivan Manzella had just done that head, that head alone. It had no scale, it had no nothing. Um, and I, how it came to be massive, I can't remember, but I drew this picture, which is very similar. It was the one at the top of that page where he's sitting there with his drink. That was a, a sort of second or third attempt to flesh out his costume. But I'd drawn this picture and drawn him massive with this girl sitting, you know, cozied up to him. She was, uh, I can't remember, she was a Twi'lek. I just threw in a Twi'lek because everyone loves Twi'lek. Anyway, that picture, which isn't in this book, but looks, it has a similar pose and shows the scale between the girl and and what would become Grumgar. You know, JJ literally latched onto that. He thought, oh, that's cool, you know. And he basically then, from this one little sketch, did that whole scene. Yeah. That didn't exist prior to that sketch that was like okay right she can be the one she that girl that's sitting there who was called you know the bezine who became you know, she can be she can be the the spy that radios into the uh, the baddies that that that, that, that our, our heroes are there so that was all sparked off that one little sketch so yeah i got the pleasure i got the sort of i got the kind of it was great you know i got to sort of as much as the rest of my colleagues had done these head shots i got to flesh out a lot of um uh, the bodies and the costumes and things like that so i can't take full credit for all of that on that page <laughs> <laughs> well i mean working so closely with with jj i think really sparks a lot of this uh finished product like you're mentioning i, I would love to kind of now talk about let's say even last jedi and working with with ryan and creating a, a new world with him uh, with this same sort of team, 
what was what was different for you and then how did that translate to the screen i mean l- looking at the the different creatures that you helped create for last jedi the the paramount one in terms of at least the marketing for the movie is of course the porg who are now still just kind of the iconic yeah. thing that came out of last jedi uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. what was it like working with Ryan and, and bringing this new Star Wars for him to life? I mean, every every director has, has got their own way of working and they're all sort of, you know, every time we've started a new one, whether it's with JJ or Ryan, um, you know, you sort of have to adjust slightly to, to, to their way of working. But they nonetheless, they've all given us pretty much the same carte blanche <laughs> to just create kind of what we want. Uh, as much as you know, they've got a brief for certain things, they're more than happy just to go show us some cool aliens and we'll try and fit them in. Um, so they've all been great in that respect, which has been brilliant. Ryan is, uh, I mean, yeah, he was great to work with, very decisive. He really kind of, he kind of knew what he wanted. Um, he sort of felt like he knew what he wanted, was waiting for you to sort of give it, you know, <laughs> until he, he knew it, what he wanted, and he would, when you showed it what it was, he would go, yeah, that's it. There was no kind of messing around. And, and then it was very, yeah, some of those processes were very quick. Like, for instance, I'm not saying quick, or, or just to jump away from what I was doing, like, for instance, the Fabiers, which came out, eventually came out, I think Aaron McBride did those. You know, Aaron had done those designs in the States, and we were asked to sort of come up with some ideas, and we did a lot of work on it. And eventually, we just went back to what Aaron had done, because that's what actually Ryan, you know, he, he, he thought he'd try and see what we could do. But really, he did like, you know, that design and went with it. In the end, he just needed to double check that he wasn't missing. So he was very, he kind of knew his, he knew what he wanted. And the Porgs, the Porgs are really kind of quite easy. You know, I've done other work on other characters for other things, which just goes on and on and on. You're trying to sort of nail it, and it, it, it it's very, you know, it's it's long process. Whereas the Porgs, I don't know, it probably only took a couple of weeks to get that right. And, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of days for me to even just generate the idea that the, the genesis, I think, you know, I remember, yeah, it was within a matter of days. We'd had a brief, um, which was, we, you know, as I've uh, the, the location's got these puffins on. We want something similar to sort of, the idea was, they were shooting on Skellig Island, and Skellig Island is a nature reserve. You can only go there very, you know, the windows are opportunity to go there because it's, it's, there's a lot of puffins that nest there. And I think, you know, when they were there wrecking, they realized that wherever you kind of quite often point a camera, there's potentially going to be a puffin, not necessarily there in shot, you know, but in the background, somewhere deep background, or flying around. You do see them in the, in the final shot, you know, wheeling around the cliffs of the puffins. And I think Ryan looked at that and thought, oh, we can't, you know, I think let's just work with this. You know, there's probably too many puffins to digitally remove, but let's try and, uh, let's try and add something that justifies the existence in other shots of these, you know, birds flying around it'd be quite cool just to throw in a few little close-ups here and there just so you make the connection or you don't even think about it really so it was just they were going to be you know they had to be a vaguely similar size and weight and feel and you know to a puffin so that was the initial brief and i did lots of things that were like uh, bird-like and 
non-bird-like and I did crazy things that looked like birds. I did weird things that were a mishmash of otters and I was looking at otter fur and, you know, that sort of furriness of, of aquatic mammals and sort of mashing it up with something vaguely bird-like. And, and the porgs were actually a kind of weird mashup of, you know, I was looking at, at pug dogs, which have a sort of slightly dumb, gormless look about them, and seals, which have that big, you know, again, the, the, the eyes of seals, and they're sort of mammals, and they've got whiskers and stuff like that. And I was thinking about penguins and puffins. And they, the original, the pork design that Ryan was drawn to was actually the same sort of shape, but it was actually a bit more of like a seal texture and had flippers. And further down the line, it got changed to feathers because we thought it'd be cooler. Yeah. I don't remember how that really happened, but I think it's like, hey, why don't we make it feathers like a bird? You know, so fine. Uh, but essentially what I was just getting it to is the, going back to what I was saying about simplicity, it's again a very simple design. It's like an egg with two a kind of grumpy mouth and two eyes perched at the very top of his head. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. It's so simple. Colour-wise, that was one thing which was uh, went through a lot, and it sort of circled back. And I think we just we I must have done dozens and dozens of different ideas of colours just to get it out right. and. The ones that were in the book, there's, you know, I think you see three, and they're weird. They're not, I don't, they're a slightly odd choice. Um, they weren't particularly my favourite. There were some more, I did all, all sorts. I did strange purples and yellows. I, I did one which was, I did various ones which were just drawing on what, you know, nature, earth nature, you know, like, like a, a mallard or a jay or something like that, and just transposing the colours. I even did my own dog. I took the, the black and tan of my dog and just transposed it on there just to see what it would look like. Um, we did, you know, I did dozens and dozens. And then we, we just picked out, I think, 10, which we thought were the best. And we painted those up on little uh, foam versions, of the, the right size. And then we just had these 10 there. And uh, yeah, Ryan picked out the one that, that it became, which kind of, in a way, had already been, again, drawn. It wasn't new. I'd sort of quite often drawn it being brown with, I don't think I'd put in a lot of the time I'd drawn orange. It had brown with orange flashes. I was drawing sort of blue and red flashes, a bit more like a puffin. I was drawing on puffin coloration, really. So a lot of the drawings I did had this kind of similar look, even though we went crazy at one point and did these insane colour schemes <laughs> just to get it out, you know, just in case, in case you're missing something, really. And you think, oh, wow, that would have been good. So we kind of came back around to where we were, even though we'd done all this other ideas. We kind of knew what we wanted. I think everyone knew what they wanted in the end. I love it. Well, I, one of the, the things that stick out to me are, are still on that island, right? It, it's both the, the phallus sirens, the space cows, and the nuns. Oh. Um, <laughs> and the, the space cows especially, I, I love because of how much detail was given to them, especially that puppet is is huge and that attention to be like no if we're doing this we're doing this uh so that it's real and there and on the yeah. side of the island uh what was that design process like for you and then what was it like seeing it translated all the way to having who knows how many puppeteers in there making this space cow work design process of the thala siren or the sea, sea cow we called it space cow yeah it started off again it, i was doing a lot of drawings which were very they were lying on their bellies like very big 
elephant seal. Elephant seals was my big sort of inspiration. And I'd drawn one design which actually looked a bit, the, the face essentially was, it, it was, was the, was, didn't change. But Ryan came in and he, he basically said, I want the creature to be, this is his thing, right? His, work, his input into this was to be something like, like, it, like a, like a guy with a beer and a lazy boy, yeah? Big slobby sort of. <laughs> that was, <laughs> that was uh, so that's all Ryan. Why it sits like that is him. And uh, so I kind of took this design that I'd already done and just made it sit up on its bum, slop, you know, flopped up against the rocks with an imaginary beer. And that's the pose. And yeah, then we had to get it onto this. Yeah, it was made, we made this huge thing which had two puppets, I think it had one or two puppeteers, two, I think. It had, uh, we had a couple of guys on the outside. We had, uh, I know Aiden was on the outside, who was in the, uh, he was in Bob, Boba Joe. He's my go-to guy for giving very terrible tea. I, I stuff Aiden in all sorts of horrible costumes. He's very accommodating. Anyway, this isn't about Aiden. Aiden, I know, was operating a flipper. And there's a couple of other guys operating the head and doing stuff. But we had to get a couple of guys inside. And they were, it was like, I think, I, I didn't go to the shoot. But I, I know that they were locked inside. You know, the, the they were locked inside the, the neck. They had to act, go in through the top of the neck. And then the neck was, you know, flip top head. It just was then closed and sealed up. And the join was painted out physically. And they were in there for hours, you know, I think they all the things they needed, as it were, if you know what I mean, to survive inside this thing. Right. And they operated, uh, I think they had flippers and udders and breathing and things like that. So there were probably about, three, I think, yeah, two, four or five guys operating that thing on this insane location. I mean, the location was the location was in Ireland. It wasn't Skellig Island because they, they, they couldn't do that sort of thing there, right. you know, from the fact the nature of the location. Um, it was shot somewhere else. And the rocks that they used were just, just I don't know if you've ever seen it, there is a making of video, which they, you can see this whole thing. You know, it, 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 they were very jagged and very, they weren't smooth and nice rocks. They were quite dangerous rocks. And what what we couldn't do is actually make the thalassar. There was nowhere for it to actually physically sit. We had to cheat. Okay, so this is quite cool. What they did is they, the, the, on the location scout, they sent the LIDAR scanner. They put a LIDAR scanner down and they LIDAR scanned the entire thing. So they had a three-dimensional uh, 3D you know, computer model of the location where it was going to sit. And they'd marked exactly where the Thalas Iron was going to be in shot. And then we made, we had a, we had, we took the LIDAR information and we had a, a section of that rock face chipped out of polystyrene so we had a huge big chunk of this thing which is exactly the right size and then they sculpted the model on top of this so that it looked like he was sitting in a crevice which wasn't there okay so so he's actually it's almost like if you take the thalassiron and slice his bottom her i should say <laughs> her bottom off uh, and then it's like a jigsaw it just fits neatly over these rocks and gives the impression that it's sitting in a sort of little hollow uh, when it's not there so the the whole thing is then flown in by a helicopter and dropped, and it would just neatly jigsaw into the rocks and become this uh, apparently sitting in this position. <laughs> Tough location. 
there's a very cool behind the scenes i think it's on the dvd on the blu-ray there's a they shot it like an hour making of yes. and you can see being flown in and <laughs> it's incredible that's, i mean that's because the director of the jedi that documentary is a incredible but b really highlights both the importance of going all in whether it's the thalus siren or canto bite and creating yeah. and and i what i loved about the canto bite sequences in that documentary is the focus on bringing in all these models and people to be the patrons of the casino and it really reminded me of how they brought in people to be patrons of the cantina for a new hope what was it like designing for the casino and and creating not only puppets and masks but also uh creating a sense of elegance in the star wars universe that we really hadn't seen prior oh you that <laughs> it that initial the initial uh yeah reaction to that brief was oh you know just this is this is hard, you know. Yeah. So we'd gone from I think the Force Awakens was great because we felt like we were just doing what we all thought Star Wars should be and had been and grew up with, you know. We we're just tapping into our into our inner kid and you know the resources that we had of, of what we th- knew Star Wars to be. And then Canterbite was just something else. It was like yeah, this this elegant world of of black tie and refinement and it was yeah it was not easy to get into that mindset i love doing it in height you know now I, you know, looking back at it it was great it was really challenging creative you know creatively challenging to be able to then have to sort of change your mindset and and think okay i can't do sort of you know bounty hunters and i can't do these scavengers and i can't do this they've got to have this sort of elegance to them which was yeah we really enjoyed it, really. And just thinking, how are they going to be, how is this going to work? <laughs> you know, you just think, how? I don't know. Yeah. It did. Yeah, it really did. And the casting on the other, you know, aside from what we did, you know, the casting was fantastic. It was really cool looking kind of characters in the background. So, yeah, it was good. Very, very good. I, I can keep going on Last Jedi. I can keep going on, on Force Awakens. Uh, I'd love to, to briefly talk about the, the two standalone movies. Uh, both both Rogue One and and Solo and your design work there because uh, first with Rogue One and and again Derek Arnold with Pow uh, really yeah. just such uh, one of my favorite aliens from this entire uh, new run of Star Wars movies oh, cool. ever. it's just so cool and I, and then, I mean Rogue One is what was I I have to say you know I had a great run on Force Awakens and a lot of my designs were picked and then and then Rogue One I think I had three. <laughs> And I always had a t- I had a tough time on Rogue One yeah. because yeah, I got on well with with Gareth, but for some reason he didn't. He kept picking everyone else's ideas uh, and not mine. And whatever, well, yeah, certainly right. I did well. I did well on Force Awakens. Oh yeah, and uh, a lot of guys did well on Rogue One. And I and I but I remember struggling just to think I don't I don't know what it is that I, I I'm I'm not doing right here. And it was a it was a struggle that job, in some respect. <laughs> but nonetheless, yes, he he picked Pow and uh, Pow. Pow started off as an idea I'd had on Force Awakens for a we it was a we were given this design uh, I can't remember now some sort of jungle warriors or I can't remember it's something that never happened in the end uh, and I'd drawn this very sort of tribal character that was all hair and mouth and he, his eye like powers you couldn't see his eyes it was screwed up because it was just mouth it's just massive mouth. And I'd drawn him as it was really sort of scary, wild-looking thing. But I sort of pitched it back again into to Gareth. I'd put this drawing back up because I think we were doing at some point there was yeah, obviously jungles going on there. 
but he he liked it but said could you make it you know something else like you know a trooper a rebel trooper a rebel soldier so i just yeah i sort of redesigned it i kept the i remember just redrawing it and trying to keep as much of this sort of silhouette that i'd got out of this drawing for this wild tribal guy and i sort of he had long hair so so how has got this sort of uh flap like a on his cap this sort of uh fabric which comes down the side of his head which is sort of where the hair on the, the yeah the silhouette wise of the old of the original drawing i just transposed the hair for this material uh and then yeah it was like okay how are we going to technically get this to work i mean it was brilliant you know we had when powell's mouth was shut Derek couldn't see anything at all he was completely blind he had to look out of Powell's mouth. So Derek, we, we basically embedded Derek so far inside this thing that when Powell opens his mouth, and if Derek opens his mouth, you can effectively look all the way down Derek's throat. Yeah? <laughs> it's an extension. Yeah. goes straight down. And then Derek himself is looking out of the roof of Powell's mouth. So in, in, in the ridges, you know, in the inside of your mouth, you've got those, you know, ridges. And effectively, it's in the darkness of those ridges, there are actually slits for his eyes oh, wow. and nose it's quite hard for him to see at times yeah, you know at times he had to <laughs> but yeah if he shut his mouth he couldn't see anything <laughs> so yeah and it's i think his nose was worked into the design of his mouth interior with solo the now famous story of using your daughter's art as inspiration, oh, yeah. which is so 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 great <laughs> Uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about that and and the process you had uh, working with the solo team and and bringing those cloud riders to life. My daughter, since I started on, yeah, you know, she was seven, I think, or six or seven when I started on, on, and she knew she was very, she was brilliant, right? She knew about BB-8. She couldn't, I couldn't, she couldn't help but know about BB-8. <laughs> In fact, she actually ended up having to sign an NDA it's because they came to it for a set visit uh-huh. and she signed an NDA. So she, she was very good and she knew not to chat. Yeah, she she knew not to keep her mouth shut. So she knew about BB-8 for two years before the film came out and didn't say a word. And she's, uh, I, I admire her for that. Yeah. Anyway, she was very inspired by what I was doing and would very occasionally sort of draw me some, hey, look, I've drawn some aliens. Could <laughs> could you sort of draw them up? You know, or could, could they be in Star Wars? And I'm like, yeah, some, some, some of them were good. Some of them were okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not... I'm not saying everything she did was brilliant. You know, she's unrealistic, and I say yeah, that's quite good. Some of the ones I, I I liked, I thought that's got potential, and I would draw them up, you know, as as proper designs. And quite frankly, you know, wouldn't know, you know the silly ones. I I did, I, I did occasionally draw the silly right. ones. Uh, everyone would laugh at me. You know, Neil would just go, oh, no, not another one. But some you just would not know. And that one I loved. What became Orame Isalo, which uh, which is brilliant. Uh, I, I loved it. It was a very simple design. I just thought this is amazing. You know, by the time I'd drawn it up, it, again, it's a brilliant little silhouette. It had these fantastic eyes, which I did as sort of, I think I referenced amber uh-huh. as as as, as eyes. You know, the chunks of amber. They were, they were they were, you know, you can't. There's no pupils or anything. And it's got these weird tubes with these. Yeah, I, I loved him, and I, he actually ended up being. I threw him into pitched him on Last Jedi, oh. and he got to the B. He got he got into the B list, and then it was like, oh, he's always oh, got into the B list, and then <laughs> I came home the next week. I was like, no, he's fallen by the wayside. Sorry, but I'll try again. And I again, when it got to Solo, I redrew him in a different outfit, uh-huh. and he got picked. Not the Cloud Rider outfit, actually. He got picked. There's another outfit, and you do actually see him. 
a split second in the spaceport in that outfit, but he got, you know, in the whole process of making that film and the change of directors and the reshoots and, and whatever, the whole thing got lost. But he did get picked up again and put into the Cloud Riders. So, yeah, it kind of, that, that, was, that was her contribution. One of the things, and I don't know how much you can talk about it and how much I'm just reading into it, is the horses created for Solo. Oh, yeah. Which even, even show up on the poster, and they were cut from the movie. But then, of course, in Rise of Skywalker, we also have space horses. How much of that design yeah. was replicated, and then what was that process of jumping in between the movies for it? The Kondiaks, they shot it all. I think the Kondiaks just fell by the wayside into the edits. I think they were just, they did it, but just from a time point of view, they just thought, oh, okay, that's one thing we can afford to cut out. They were, I think, originally going to just use them to get from one point to the the train convey X and jump. You know, there's going to be a sort of, I think, slightly cowboy, you know, Western-style jumping from Kodiok to train or something. But it became just one too many things, which is kind of why it fell by the wayside. Uh, I think you can see a Kodiok head on display in the in the bar that they go and visit. Um there's a big giant one, but so, but yeah, I mean, on all, a lot of these, for all of these films, I have done a lot of animals as well. And <laughs> like, and trying to find ways of bringing an animal into, you know, because again, it's a, it's a, it's a huge Star Wars legacy with the Banthers and their use of elephant. You know, it's brilliant, you know, but to be able to sort of, you know, get the performance of an animal is, is worth a, a go. <laughs> yeah, we did it in Force Awakens, but it was again, lost in the edit. We did, we had some alpacas in the background, which we had these, you know, we extended their heads and they had these crazy looking heads. We learned a lot doing that with the alpacas about what they, and you know, you have to make these things as comfortable and as you've got, the animals have got to be happy, otherwise you're not doing it at all. Right. So we, a lot of the designs for all the animals we've done are really tailored about towards what the animals are happy to wear. So for instance, I think the alpacas and the horses they like their ears to be really free. They don't like things touching their ears. They like a certain amount of space around, you know, a given amount of space around their eyes. And you've got these sort of parameters to work with. And if you don't infringe on those parameters, they're happy and they just sort of wear these crazy outfits. It's as much as, I suppose, a, a police horse or a, you know, knights in armor, they'd wear all these sort of things that they just, they're cool with wearing them as long as you don't annoy them. <laughs> uh, so we learned a lot the alpacas uh and we took a lot of those things with us when we did look at the horses for the kodioks in solo they had you know again a lot of those designs were born uh, came about you know they had these big bug eyes simply because we needed a huge amount of space around the horse's eyes and what do we do with that space so we just basically put these big lenses (laughs) their eyes and that was it yeah now what do we uh i think i can't remember if we left i think we might have left their ears free i think i can't remember now or we had a certain amount of space then with the on the space horses which name i can't remember for we almost did a practical effect and it probably they did it in the end they had cg faces uh-huh. uh in hindsight we could have actually done it for real but just time really we just didn't have time to produce uh, the, I think a lot of the, the, the logistics and the schedule changed and suddenly we had to do the horses earlier than we'd anticipated. And as much as yeah, we'd worked out this way that we could have done a mask and it would have effectively been like the design was 
they were going to look out of the nostrils. But it was very easy. It was very sort of close-fitting mask, which would have gone over their faces, and there would have been fake eyes at the top. The eye holes for the horse would have been these giant nostrils, and they're so dark inside you can't really see their eyes, and they're moving, and you just you know, they just get lost. Right. Well, yeah, due to I think scheduling, it just couldn't happen, and they were well, they just said, "Oh, don't worry, we'll we'll CGM on." <laughs> yeah, so we went, fine. It was a bit just, I was a bit frustrated that we didn't get the opportunity. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, with with Rise of Skywalker, especially one of the things that we're talking about is the creation of new aliens, and that was always. I mean, people are like, "Where are the legacy aliens?" And Solo <laughs> has as Rodians and. Twilix, and then you move to to Rise of Skywalker, uh, and then one thing that you mentioned that I would love to talk about is is Mr. Zutton. How did Snaggletooth make it to the screen? Uh, he made it because I I I, am, I do keep going on a bit boringly. Like, can we have some legacy aliens? I don't know why they don't happen. I'm I don't know. These things just kind of happen. I think for some reason there've been previous. As I say we 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 design a lot of aliens. We put a lot in there, and then things change, and then suddenly half your aliens aren't in it right and often you know we've tried to get legacy aliens in before and they're the ones that have also fallen by the wayside along with some of our designs so in the in the process of the the filmmaking you know schedules change things happen suddenly half the things you're doing aren't in it and that includes some legacy ones so i keep trying we do or i say i we keep trying but it kind of keeps failing anyway i did this time i said look can we have let's get let's get you know, a couple in, and I thought really cool to have uh, Zuton or Snaggletooth in. Just yeah, you know, why not? And we also had uh, Hammerhead. I think you can see him in one shot in that Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. So anyway, so I said, look, can we have a few Legacy Aliens in here? I think there was meant to be more on Tatooine. At the time. Tatooine was a factor. Put it that way. Into why I suggested. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, and then that kind of disappeared, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we were left. We've still got Zuton. We've made him, uh, so we took him to we took him to Jordan, and I went to Jordan, and I just said, "Can I be Zuton?" <laughs> <laughs> no one had any argument about it. There was nothing. There's no one lined up to play him. Yeah. You know, we, we use a lot of of standard performers. He was made to be pretty. You know, anyone can pull his head on, and uh, and so anyone kind of could have done it to the point where they fitted me with an outfit which only fitted me yeah. so once the once his costume had been done uh, that was uh, sorted i'm in yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it yeah uh, and i did loads of that and i'm really i don't know i've got my fingers crossed for the blu-ray because again you know we obviously as with most films we shoot an awful lot and then and then things don't make it to the, to the final edit right. um did spot myself because i knew where to look can see me uh, when Ray is first. I think they're looking at a puppet show, and in the deep, deep background, uh, walking aimlessly. Because I, but I basically I played it as, a, as though I was a tourist <laughs> visiting the festival. Right. Yeah, because yeah. mainly it's all the the Akiakis, right. but there's a few other aliens there, and it's like, well, you know, they've just come come to check it out. So I was, a, I was a, in my head. On, on on vacation to uh, that world, and I'm just wandering around, sort of like you know, looking around me in, in awe. Like this is amazing, yeah. cool, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so if you look, you can see me just sort of yeah, you know, looking around in the background. But I know where to look because yeah. I knew where. 
That's great. Can't wait. I can't wait for the Blu-ray of just the extended Snaggletooth cut and just a, a huge yeah. amount of, of snag footage. I, I had this whole little thing going on with, with, with Snaggletooth and the, the you know, things he was doing, which I have to wait to the Blu-ray see if it's on there. Yeah, it's, that's it's great. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned the Aki Aki, and what was it like walking among something that you helped design, right? Seeing it in the flesh and, and being on screen with these physical manifestations of your of your artwork. Uh, well, it's all. I mean, look. I mean, that it's always whenever you know. I quite often go on set. I don't, I don't normally go away on location because I've always moved on to the next film. Right. But but going on set and seeing the stuff I've done is always pretty insane. Even if it's just one thing that I've done. Um, when you're in the desert surrounded by, I think they had, you know, 500 aliens, which was a logistical, yeah, it's just insane. Um, we had five, I think it's about 500, hundreds of very different, yeah, we had ABCs, you had ones to work close to camera, you had middle ground, you had deep background and they were made differently. And then the, the Jordanian army were sort of half of them were sort of soldiers really. Yeah. You know, you sort of think. Oh, wow, I'm, I'm in the desert. Yeah. I am to be surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of this. Yeah, I mean, I'm repeating what you've just said, really. It's insane. Uh, yeah, it, I can't really describe thinking, you know, here are all these aliens that kind of came out of my head. It's always whatever I draw, whatever I've done, and you see it being realized. You see people sculpting it. You see people building the animatronics for the interiors. And, and you know, I'm always quite sort of taken aback to think, wow, <laughs> you know, it, Two weeks ago, this was a, this was a drawing yeah. on a piece of paper. Now it's uh, it's been made by several people. You know, lots of people involved. Yeah, it's always, it's always brilliant. I love it. I love it. It's quite hard to describe it, really. Well, <laughs> final thing, I'd love to just talk briefly about you. You helped with BB-8 for Force Awakens, and then almost full circle, working again with JJ to to help design Dio. Yes. What was that process like with him? And was it a similar like cone over circle simplicity of a design? And then, and then going from there or what was that carry through? That was again, there's several, again, the t- you know, me, it's not, it's not just me. There's, there's, it started off with, you know, the rest of us all pitching ideas. We have a brief. I think the brief was essentially, you know, what it is in the film is this sort of broken down old little droid that, that BB-8 kind of brings back to life or has some sort of formative interaction with in that the brief was like and this is it like a duckling you know a baby duckling it would attach itself to the first thing it sees as being its parent so he was quite we, we called him duckling droid for a little while he was you know before we knew what he was called uh, there are various ideas we did so many different things you know between the four of us we generated just a, a huge range of things but I did, I did some which were based on duck. I, just, I was very literal about it. I thought, okay, let's do some little things that are literal. And I drew something that looked like a duck. And I think an element of that probably then developed into the cone. And again, I'm into this sort of simplicity thing, trying to find cool shapes where I drew, you know, a cone on a ball or a circle or something like that. JJ was drawn to that cone more than anything. The fact he's on a wheel was... Yeah, I mean, I'd drawn a circle in places. At the same time, we were also, you know, Josh Lee, the the same animatronic designer for BB-8, he'd been sort of developing, like, just mechanical ideas. Uh-huh. Here's a means for this role. I think he'd done, he might have done a wheel. It, so, again, it's sort of, this whole thing is a sort of amalgamation of, of different inputs where, you know, for a long time, Josh had his thing, which he'd made, this 
wheel with a head. The head is nothing like Dio is now. And it all then just kind of came together. It was like, hey, let's try that head on this wheel sort of thing. That's JJ talking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's an amalgamation of different people sort of like, hey, let's try this, let's try this. Yeah, so yeah, for a long time, he was a wheel with something on top. And between the four of us concept designers, we were generating lots of ideas with wheels and a different head. And it just came down to the end being that cone which kind of won through. Now that the Star Wars movies have have stopped uh, over in the UK, what are you working on now? What what are the projects that fans can expect you to be working on? And what are you excited to start doing? Well, I have very recently. I've, told, I've been doing a lot of storyboarding. Uh-huh. I used to do a lot of what they said, and I did some. I've done Venom two, so storyboarded last year, and I've just been storyboarding Tomb Raider two, which I'm still doing this week. Ben Wheatley. Very, it's kind of early days. It's pre pre. It's not pre pre production. <laughs> I think it go to production. I hope. I hope uh, in the next month or a few months. Uh, but I'm actually also actually working on uh, Star Wars TV. Oh, nice. So I've already kind of done a few days here and there, and nice. probably do a few more a couple of weeks. I know that things are happening there already. Um, so I am involved in Star Wars. Oh, I mean, that's that's music to my ears. That's awesome. Uh, the work you did for for these movies really transcended and and have taken their place in the in the Star Wars universe. And so I'm excited to see uh, what you do next. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Other than that, you'll be at South by uh, Southwest in March. Uh, yes, I will be there. And I'll also put a link uh, in the show notes to a signing you're doing. And I think the, the signing is still open because there are also sketch opportunities, which I think is super cool um, through Elite Signatures. So I'll put a, a link there. It's the second round I've done. I'm sure it'll, yeah, if there's demand, it'll happen yeah. again. Yes. I'm doing sketches as well, which is <laughs> incredible. Uh, Mr. Lunt Davies, thank you so much for your time and your stories and, and all the work you've done. It's much appreciated. Brandon, thank you. Suzanne. Mr. Lunt Davies for being so generous with his time and stories. You can find a link to that signing and sketch opportunity, which is closing orders very soon, at eliteautographs.co.uk. Follow at Jake Lunt Davies on Instagram for an even closer look at his designs, and of course, check out Phil Shostak's incredible art of books from Abrams for more, with the art of The Rise of Skywalker hitting shelves on March 31st. Next week is my conversation with Mr. Steve Sansweet. So until then, stay tuned. Please leave a five-star review. May the Force be with you.